listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Good morning. My name's Fritz Hager. In case I forget that I don't normally preach here, Mark has left his name tag right here up on the stand, so I'll be looking at Mark's name the whole time I'm here. I've been on staff at Bethel for a little over seven years. I'm usually on the South Campus, uh, but I get to move around every once in a while. I actually went to Bethel as a high school kid in the 80s when it first started, so it's fun to see how Bethel has grown and changed over all that time. I'm also glad to be here to help in some way the Kirkendall family celebrate what happened this weekend. So I think most of you probably know Mark graduated from Southern Seminary on Saturday with a doctor of ministry. And so Mark is now Dr. Mark. And I tell you, I saw it in writing in an email, um, and it, it stunned me um, that He's Dr. Mark now, and so I've got all these medical issues now I can get with him, have him help me out on. Uh, but the third reason I'm excited to be here, of course, is potluck. Uh, this is great that you guys are still the size where you can actually pull this off, and I've never seen such a great variety of crockpots over there. I, I give you a warning, though. The last time I preached at a potluck, it really wasn't preaching. It was a Bible conference, and it was in Italy. And I spoke after lunch. And so if you take a whole lot of pasta and a little bit of wine and that afternoon nap that you always need after church, and imagine speaking through that, I think I finished with about a third of my audience conscious. So hopefully we'll do a little better than that today since this is before, before potluck. So let's get started. Um, almost 27 years ago to the day, I just finished the military version of planes, trains, and automobiles. I started at Fort Hood, Texas on a journey, flying all night to Frankfurt, Germany, waiting for a bus to take us to Stuttgart. And then just after dark, we loaded on deuce and a half, which are the military's version of the cargo truck, which have an open air bed covered only in canvas, which means it kind of acts like a wind tunnel. As the air moves over the top of the cab, it flows straight into the back and is caught by that canvas. And so I, along with about 15 other soldiers, huddled with our gear, forming a human windshield, if you will. Did I mention it was cold? It was the coldest I had ever been. I spent four years going to college in New York, and I had never been that cold. It was about five below zero when we left the base. And after a couple of hours, when we're like ice cubes in a tray, we finally exit the Autobahn. We bump along this country road into the forest, into what we know as the Black Forest. And we finally stopped. Someone yelled at us to get out. And we unloaded all our gear. And then the truck left. And my first thought was, it's so cold, we might die out here. I had never been that cold. So we started assembling our tent. It's this heavy canvas tent called a GP medium. It's about 16 feet wide. It's about 32 feet long. And after several missteps there in the dark, we finally got the tent up. 
which blocked the wind, which was good, but also blocked the light. And we noticed that it was so cold that the batteries in our flashlights were beginning to fail. And so a group of sergeants who always come to the rescue, they started assembling this heater, a diesel heater. And I don't know how many pieces this heater had, but it looked like somebody had dumped a box of Legos on the ground and were trying to assemble it in the dark with gloves on, five below zero. That's when I thought we're probably going to die. And after a few failed attempts, we're down to the last couple of fading flashlight batteries And the heater was assembled, so somebody got the matches out of their MRE, those meals we eat out of bags, small set of paper matches, and they struck the match. And we watched that tiny little spark sputter and go out in the black darkness, hurting in the bone-chilling cold. I can't tell you the words that were spoken in that moment. But at that moment, I knew we were going to die. My hope had been extinguished, just like that tiny little paper match. You ever been there before? Maybe not in a tent in the middle of the Black Forest in Germany, but in a very dark place, hurting, alone. When the darkness is crowding out the light, and crowding out your hope. Our text today is going to tell us about a light that won't sputter, that won't fail, and that cannot be overcome. A light that is unlike any light we've ever known and has ever existed. This passage is one of the most famous in the Bible. It's John 1, verses 1 through 5, if you want to turn there. We're going to be spending the rest of Advent in the first 18 verses of John. It's what's called the prologue to the Gospel of John, and we're going to start with the first five verses. But while you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little preview of how we'll spend our time together this morning. I'm going to read today's passage, but we're going to start, when we get into it, we're going to start at the end in verse 5 that says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we're going to work backwards Because I think the first five verses really answer the question, why is the light not overcome? And then we'll see three reasons why we should believe that. And these verses will build piece by piece into the truth, kind of our thesis for this passage. It says, Jesus is the eternal divine word who is uniquely unquenchable light that creates and brings real life to man. So please stand with me as we read John 1, the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Please be seated. 
So why is the light not overcome by the darkness? As we begin to answer that question, it's important for us to realize that light, when John wrote this, was much more scarce and fragile in the first century than it is today. And outside of sunlight, light came from small oil lamps or candles or torches or, or maybe a fire. There wasn't electricity or generators or flashlights and all the things that allow us to summon light whenever we need it. Our technology allows us to push back against physical darkness in a way that John could not have imagined. But this passage points to something more than physical darkness. The darkness here is the darkness of evil and unbelief. And if you wanted to, you could look at John 3.19 to see where the same author says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. It's also important to remember as we look at this conflict of light opposing darkness is that unlike in the physical world, while these are still opposing forces, they're not equal. Verse, tell, verse 5 tells us they are not equal and that the darkness cannot overcome the light. That's because we know from outside this passage who John says that light is. Later in chapter 8, verse 12, John says that Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. In verse 9 of this chapter, John the Baptist is bearing witness to the light coming into the world. So what verse 5 is saying is that Jesus Christ, the light of the world, has entered into the darkness of evil and unbelief and lostness and death. And this darkness does not overcome Jesus. Now that makes a huge difference to those of us who believe in Jesus. In John 12, verse 46, Jesus says, I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So believers have passed from darkness to light. John 12, 36 says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. When you believe in Jesus, not only do you leave the darkness and enter the light, you actually join the family of the light. You become children of the light. Paul said in Ephesians 5.8, Once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. It makes a big difference to us if the light triumphs or if the darkness happens to overcome it. Because the light is our team. It's our family. And verse 5 is clear. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's in the present tense. It continues on. The light will triumph and that means Jesus will triumph. And all those who believe in Him, the children of light, will triumph. You know, we need to hear that today because it often seems like darkness is overcoming the light in the world today, almost at every level. Evil and unbelief seem to be on the rise, whether it's the brutal oppression of Christians in the Middle East, the rise of human slavery to the point where there are more people living today in slavery than at any point in time in human history. Or in our country, the way the culture tide has turned against Christians on many fronts, 
marriage, abortion, even the existence of truth. Or maybe it's closer to home, in our homes, with fractured families, with loved ones who seem to have walked away from their faith, or maybe have never come to faith. You know, depending on your perspective, it would be easy to conclude that the darkness is winning. Or to place your hope in something less than this true light. But as children of light, we have staked our lives today and eternally on the truth of John 1, 5. The light shines on in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so we should face the darkness around us with this confidence. Because the first piece of our thesis here today is that Jesus is the unquenchable light. But why should we believe that light wins? Beyond it says it here in verse 5. I think this passage gives us three reasons. The first is in verse 4. The light is alive and it is life-giving. Look at verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. But what kind of life is this? You know, there are two kinds of life. The first and most obvious for us Christians here is eternal life. Jesus says in John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So by grace, through faith in Jesus, we are brought from the realm of darkness, of the realm of unbelief and of evil, into the realm of light, into eternal life. Which sounds great, right? Everybody should want to do that. But John tells us later in chapter 3, verse 19, that some people actually prefer the darkness to the light. Now think about that for a second. Who prefers the dark to the light? If we're talking about physical darkness, I don't know anyone who prefers the dark to the light. You know, it starts with little kids who ask you, Daddy, please leave the light on when it's time to go to bed. You know, as a young dad, I used to think that that was learned behavior and that I could train my kids to not be afraid of the dark. And so I started them then when they were just babies, and I'd turn the light off when it was time to go to sleep. And, you know, as they got older, of course, they began to scream, and I decided that I prefer sleep more than I prefer having kids who aren't afraid of the dark, which might explain why some of my teenagers today don't like to go bring the trash cans out at night. Or maybe it's that it actually involves work. I'm not sure which one it is. But nobody prefers the dark, right? You're in the house by yourself. What do you do? You turn off all the lights and just sit there in the dark? No. You turn on lights, a bunch of them, maybe all of the lights. But you know who's not afraid of the dark? Blind people. And it's the same thing here. The people that prefer the darkness to the light of the world are blinded, spiritually blinded. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 
that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But not only does Jesus offer eternal life, He offers life today. Life in this life. John tells us the reason that Jesus came was not just so that we could have life, but have life in abundance. Paul describes this life of abundance as the fruit of the Spirit, as a life marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't know about you, but I sure need more of that in my life. So the first reason why the light is unquenchable is because the light is alive and it is life-giving. So if we were to add another piece to our thesis puzzle, we're now at the point where we can say Jesus is the unquenchable light that brings real life to man. Now let's look at verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So the second reason why the light is unquenchable is that the light is the Creator of everything, including, in a way, the darkness. If we were to go all the way back to Genesis 1, verse 3, we would see that the very first act of creation was that God spoke light into existence. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. But this passage today is unique, and it's the first time canonically that we see that it was specifically the Son who was the Creator. Now, I said canonically, meaning as this book falls in our Bible, it's the first time we learn that the Son of God, who we know is Jesus, is the Creator. Even though this book was written years after Paul wrote Colossians, where in the first chapter he says in verse 16, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Notice the end of that verse. All things were created for Him. He, as Creator, has authority over the things He created, even the forces of darkness, the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities of darkness, who all know that there is a day coming when their reign and their power will end. So the first reason the light is unquenchable is that the light is alive and it is life-giving. The second reason why the light is unquenchable is that the light is the creator of everything, including, in a way, the darkness. Which brings us to the third reason. The light is the eternal, personal God. Let's look at the first two verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
we'll break these verses into three parts that show the eternality of the light, the personality of the light, and the divinity of the light. So the first part, in the beginning was the Word. It starts kind of the same way as Genesis 1. In the beginning, meaning before anything, pre-existing, before time, eternal. But John doesn't say in the beginning God. He says in the beginning was the Word. The Word. That's not a use we, were, we use in this context very often. So what does the Word mean? John chose that word very carefully. And we'll look at its meaning in three aspects. From the Greek or the Stoic view, from the Jewish sense emerging from the first century, and finally from a biblical viewpoint focusing on it, its meaning in the Old Testament. And while it's usually not great interpretation to give a single term such a wide range of meaning, I think it's appropriate here because John is writing to three different audiences. He's sitting in Ephesus, writing to the Western world, influenced by Greek philosophy. But he's also writing to unbelieving Jews as well as Christians. So in Greek philosophy, this was a hotly debated idea, logos, which came about by asking the question from where does everything come from? And what is pushing back against all the chaos in the world? So logos, for the Greeks, came to mean it was the rational principle by which everything exists. The logic behind everything. So the Greeks who believed in Jesus would have said that he's not just the reason for the season, but he's the reason for everything. Then, among the more progressive Jews of the first century, maybe we would call them hipster Jews, they would have understood Logos in the same way that Philo, a Jewish philosopher who lived in Egypt up until 50 AD, who saw Logos referring to the ideal man, the primal man from which all empirical humans are derived. But although Philo saw Logos as a, uh, a man, he didn't see it with a distinct personality, and he certainly didn't see it, see it as an incarnate man. And then finally, we look at the Logos that Christians, as well as Jews who held to the Old Testament, who would have understood what the Bible says about the powerful Word of God. It creates, as in Genesis 1. It's active and working and judging as Isaiah writes in Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. But the word of God also heals and delivers. As is written in Psalm 107, verse 20, it says, He set, sent out His word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. And finally, God's Word is personified wisdom in Proverbs, particularly in chapter 8. So what does, in the beginning was the Word, mean? 
you put it all together and pack all that meaning, John means that the Word was the ideal man that wisely guides and holds everything together, who creates, judges, heals, and delivers, and who existed before time and before creation. So that's in the beginning was the Word, the eternal Word. Next we have the personal Word. When John says the Word was with God. So the Word is in some way distinct or separate from God. He was His own person. But the word for with here, pros, is not the normal word we use for with, but it's a particularly intimate term that's only used between two people who are in an intimate familial relationship. You know, we have a hard time with this concept of personhood because everywhere else in creation, personhood is in separate beings. Except here. Personhood, this distinctness, relates to a distinct will and a distinct ability to act. But then the next clause brings us to the mystery of the Trinity. The Word was God. So, one with God, yet distinct from God. Fully God, eternally unified and unique. The church describes this as the same substance, the same stuff of God, but distinct persons, equal in their divinity, in their value, in their worth, but distinct in their roles. And then the next verse, verse 2, summarizes and emphasizes the first. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. Now, as each of these verses add their piece to the central truth or to the thesis of this passage, we can sum it all up to see that Jesus is the eternal divine Word who is the uniquely unquenchable light that creates and brings real life to man. So why did John choose to write it this way? Why did he mix Jewish and Greek philosophy to describe the Incarnation? And why is this even in the Bible? Why are we studying this passage today? The answer is at the end of this book, John, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Which means there are likely two groups of people here today. The first are those who believe, but who in small ways or maybe big ways are flirting with the darkness. Flirting with evil and unbelief. And for you, your fellowship with Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is impinged by sin or disbelief. You're likely not really living like the light overcomes the darkness. 
Maybe you're afraid of the dark. Maybe even afraid of the dark winning. Maybe you're so consumed with today and the now that we can't see or can't feel the victory of the light over the darkness. And there's no room for partnership between light and dark. That we would believe and feel the victory. And my prayer is that our lives would be different because of that truth. The other group here today, likely, are those who don't believe. Those who bluntly are blind to the peril that they face. Those who, to this point, have preferred the darkness to the light. My prayer is for you is that the Spirit would remove those blinders and allow you to see that Jesus is the eternal Word who came to earth, who lived as a man, who lived a life without sin, a real flesh and blood man who existed, fully man, yet somehow fully God. And that same man died an awful death on the cross to pay the price for yours, for our sin, and that his father raised him from the dead, showing that he, Jesus, the light of the world, the Logos, had ultimate and final victory over the darkness. And so that through belief and through faith in Him, you might have eternal life. And even today, an abundant life marked by love and peace and joy. You know, I wish there were more than two groups, but that's it. Light and darkness. I want to end today by reading in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5 written by the Apostle John, where he says, he points to a time where he says, and night will be no more. It will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So my friends, Although light might look fragile today, as we look around the world, in our country, or in our homes, or even in a freezing tent in the woods of Germany, a day is coming when the light won't be fragile, when nothing will stop the light, but the darkness will be blown out. Let's live in that light today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have existed before time as a perfect trinity. Three persons, yet one God. Father, we don't claim to understand that, but we know that that's the testimony of your word. And so we place our faith in the triune God. And Father, we are thankful that you sent your Son to earth, so 
so that he could reveal you to us, so that through his perfect life and through his death and resurrection, he could make peace between you and us, and he could rescue us from the darkness and bring us into your wonderful life. Father, we confess that we still flirt with the darkness, might even seem to enjoy it at times. But Father, I pray that you would give us a healthy fear of the darkness, that you would cause in us a desire to have nothing to do with it. For those who you've graciously granted faith, I pray that we would walk in the light and that those around us would see living examples of the beauty of a life lived in the light. And Father, for those who don't know you, I pray that at your time and in your grace that you would remove the blindness from them. You'd help them see and feel the peril that they are in. And open them to the truth of your Son. And Father, as we are gathered here today, those who know you and love you, I just want to create some space where we would individually think of the people in our lives who are lost in darkness and who need the light of your Son. Pray for them. Pray that you would be gracious. Call them to your son. And it's in his name that we pray. And through the mighty power of your spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.